Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It seems to me that the proliferation of false religions on this continent is accelerating. I have heard uh, disturbing alarming statistics from time to time about the uh, growth of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the uh, the Mormons, and I I think in our uh, immediate time, the Muslims. We think of these as being outside of Christianity, properly speaking, people who worship a different God uh, altogether. But it seems to me that falsehood is also spreading through what has historically been considered Christianity. And tonight in particular, I think of the widespread influence of the charismatic movement, and this not just on this continent, but throughout the world, a heavy influence upon global Christianity. But if you would get the most out of uh, this sermon, and you can probably do it in just a few seconds, you need to think of the false religions with which you have crossed swords in uh, recent days. This might sound like a strange statement, but there is, in a false religion, there is always something that is offensive to man. Something offensive, something off. Because we have been created in the image of the true God. And uh, the creation around us and conscience within us is declaring the glory of that true God. So when we bump into these false religions, there's always going to be something that is off. It might be something that is offensive to the intellect, whether it... uh, contain absurdities or whether there be attached to it manifest fraud and impostures. These things are offensive to the mind of man as such. And sometimes, probably with equal frequency, there will be things in them that are offensive to conscience, to man's moral sense, defaced 
and damaged in the fall, but not obliterated. We do yet have a sense of what is right and wrong. So, for example, when we think about uh, the advance of uh, Islam in the Middle East and some of the uh, things that they do, some of the things that they demand, um, natural conscience, as defaced as it is, still cries out. There is something desperately wrong with this uh, religion. Since this is the case, since uh, we find it difficult to harmonize with the false religion, the devil studies means to prop up these tottering falsehoods. And one of uh, his favorite means throughout all of history has always been counterfeit miracles. Sorceries, if you will. These counterfeit miracles are, are sometimes wrought by demonic power, sometimes by um, um, uh, the skills, the illusory skills of men that have some talent for these sorts of things. So sometimes it might be explained by angelic power, fallen angels that is, sometimes by human skills, but at the end of the day, it's always deceptive. And this is what the devil intends. You have to understand the argument. It works something like this. This religion may appear absurd or even wicked, but see the evidence of divine power? So it must be true and divine. Do you follow the argument? So that my mind or my conscience is crying out against this. But look at these miracles, evidence of the work of God. So God must be in it. And this method for propping up um, evidently false religions is an ancient one. Next week, Lord willing, and in your outline, you should see Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. This is where we stopped uh, this morning. This is Egyptian religion in the 15th century BC. That's three and a half millennia ago. For those of you that don't understand those terms, that's a long time. That's a long time. But look at the method. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and sorcerers. Now there's a bit of Greek vocabulary I want you to put in your pocket here. Pharmacus in the Septuagint translation. Um, sorcerers. So then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments and their um, the Septuagint translators rendered the Hebrew pharmakeis. Uh, obviously, it's where we get the, the language of pharmacy, pharmacist, pharmacology. Uh, we'll talk about that in, in uh, just a moment. But um, so here you've got these classes of men who are skilled in these magical arts that are used to prop, prop up this manifestly false religion. You see a similar thing in Daniel chapter 2. A thousand years later, Babylonian religion is likewise supported by professionals 
that do this very sort of thing. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers, again, pharmacus and the Septuagint, and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So we've got in the scriptures at least three and a half millennia of the devil's devices in this regard. How do you, how do you make uh, men created in the image of God worship bulls and crocodiles? Well, you prop it up with magic, sorcery, counterfeit miracles, and then people are just sure that the divine is in it, that this is God. So it's not a very big stretch for you to imagine, well, how would you introduce these falsehoods into Christianity itself when the, when the perversions are absurd and evil? Well, the first thing you have to do in this case, by way of preliminary work, is get the professing Christians to close their Bibles. Because the Bible shines light, the light of truth upon error, and it shines the light of holiness upon wickedness. And so this uh, darkness is always best dispelled by the word of God, the revelation of God. But Satan has ever endeavored to get Christian people to close their Bibles. This is one of the reasons he could be so successful during the Middle Ages was early on he got the people of God to close the Bible, to commit it into the hands of monks, and then it disappeared into the monasteries, largely unseen and unknown by the common people, and not just the common people, but by, um, but by their ministers. It's really known only by specialists. People get confused because, of course, out of the Middle Ages, we get lots of exegetical works, but it's by people who read and write, sequestered in these monasteries. It doesn't give you a very good picture of what religious life generally really was, and it was great darkness and biblical ignorance indeed. So uh, you get the people to close their Bibles, you introduce the errors, the wickedness, and then you prop these offensive things up with counterfeit miracles. You pretend to have new revelations or um, do some sort of signs and wonders to support the false teaching, false doctrine, the false practice, and so on. And now, once that's gone on for a little while, and I've, I've lived this firsthand, once that's happened for a little while, even if somebody does open the Bible, now they've got an uphill battle to fight. Because the argument's going to work something like this. Okay, um, I know you say that the Bible teaches that, but we heard these revelations propped up by signs and wonders, clearly the work of God. And these revelations are contrary to your explanation of the scriptures. So certainly your explanation of the scriptures can't possibly be right. And you find it very difficult to uproot the error. And the normal outcome in these, in these cases, you might even say the nearly certain outcome apart from special grace, is that the people will interpret 
And by interpret, I mean twist the scripture to conform to what they believe to be their experience, the experiences that they've had. Uh, I grew up with this in, in charismatic circles. I have contended and wrestled with this as I've dealt with charismatics over the years. But uh, the great exemplar of this, the great satanic masterpiece, has always been the Roman system. This, uh, in this, 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 uh, if you can speak in this way, this principle and this method was brought to its perfection. But the dynamics observable in the Roman system are in principle applicable to anything analogous. The principles apply to a great many religious movements. And that brings us to the sorceries of our text. Remember where we are. We are at the tail end of the uh, sixth trumpet. In these trumpets, the Lord has stretched out his arm first against the Western Roman Empire and then against the Eastern uh, Roman Empire. The judgments have been terrible and they have not stopped until government, Roman government in both the West and the East has been obliterated uh, and the miseries of the people multiplied. In spite of all of this, as we saw in verse 20, the people will not repent of their religious declensions. Uh, they will have their anti-Christianism. They will have uh, all of these things replacing the mediator. We've talked about this, the sacraments, the priests, the church itself, and uh, the martyr cult, uh, the worship of demons. And Jesus Christ has receded into the background in the visible church. And attending all of this, there has been gross idolatry. People created in the image of God falling down, literally falling down before sticks and stones, idols of gold and silver. So when the first table of the law falls, what happens to the second? We're starting to get a sampling. Last week we talked about um, the murders of the Roman church, the bloody persecution, you might even say the bloody campaign waged against the people of God for more than a thousand years. And uh, apart from the success of the Reformation, there wouldn't have been anything in principle to stop it. The Roman church has never repudiated any of the principles that led to these uh, atrocities. And now we come to sorceries. We've already seen the, the vocabulary word in, um, in Exodus and in Daniel. It's the language of pharmakeia. Wide span of meaning. I think you'll be able to see the relationships, however, it could be anything from a doctor uh, using or administering drugs for healing to poisoning to witchcraft, which was frequently associated with potions and all of these sorts of things, right? So you see the connection between, uh, between all of these sorts of things. And so then the question for the student of scripture and for the exegete is, out of these three definitions administration of drugs, poisoning, or magical arts or sorceries, which definition ought we to choose? 
Well, first of all, this is a list of vices, isn't it? So clearly doctoring is out. If you put doctoring in there, it just wouldn't make any sense, right? So we can throw that one out, and that simply leaves poisoning and sorcery. Poisoning might be a little surprising to us because it would make it uh, redundant with the immediately preceding member, which is murder. So you get murders, and then you get a, like a species uh, murder, which would be poisoning. That might be a bit surprising. Uh, sorcery is the much more likely uh, interpretation, just looking at the words and the context of the book. Once you turn to history and let history interpret the prophecy, it really puts it beyond all doubt. Although, if you look at the history of the Middle Ages, the Romanists, as they competed one with another for power in the church and in the world, did do a fair amount of poisoning as well. But I don't think that that's um, what's principally in view here. So, by way of historical fulfillment, we have first a historical puzzle. Here you have a professing Christian world. So how can you get the masses of these professing Christians to embrace a religion that is so foreign to the Bible and even foreign uh, to evident reason and natural conscience? How do you get them to do that? And first of all, There are really two answers to this. The first answer is we need to remember that the Bible, uh, beginning at the 5th century, became almost completely unknown to the people of God. The book was closed and put away. Satan convinced people to put their Bibles away. I do think that this is prefigured in our prophecy by way of implication. If you'll just look at Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and um, I'll endeavor to fully justify this, but fully justifying it would require several hours. Maybe you can just take it as a prima facie case right from the beginning. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now remember, this is the, this is the immediate sequel to what we have just been doing. Constantinople has just fallen. I do believe that what we have here is an image of the Reformation. Again, we'll talk about this more in detail, but just the the general facets of of the prophecy. Here, this angel, I do believe to be the angel of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, once again. Uh, The rainbow, uh, the face like the sun, the feet as pillars of fire, uh, all things... uh, very much attached uh, to him. But in his hand is the book open. And one of the distinctive features of the Reformation, and everybody knows it, is sola scriptura. After a thousand years, for the first time, 
the Bible was opened again for the people of God and preached. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as crying out with a loud voice, open Bible in his hand. Um, you think about Luther and his preachers and whatnot as being a historical fulfillment in the spirit of Christ moving in them to open the book. And whoever roared like a lion the way that Luther did. And it changed, uh, it changed the world. But the opening of the book at this point implies that it was previously closed. And so uh, Satan got professors to uh, close their Bibles. And then there were other things about the Roman religion, other aspects of it that were especially suited to dull and to beguile both the intellect and the conscience. And that brings us to the sorceries. So it's just like all the other false religions, Egypt, Babylon, so it was with the Romanists. Uh, their religion was, was propped up largely by the claim of miracles. And so certainly God is with us. So let me give you a, a brief history of uh, this sad affair. We go all the way back to the 5th century when the church in the West began to close the Bible. There's a whole host of reasons for this. The reasons aren't our primary consideration, but just a couple of the uh, most evident ones, the large factors. The barbarian invasions very famously destroyed education in the West, and it was a long time before it was erected again. That makes access to the Bible difficult because the Bible is written in words. To uh, understand it, you have to be able to read to understand it well, some understanding of grammar and vocabulary, history, all of these things are necessary, but not readily available in the West. And also remember what had happened in the fourth century. The church had become thickly sown with tares. And the simple fact of the matter is, tares don't care. They don't want to open the Bible. They don't want to study it. God's sheep, Christ's sheep hear his voice in the scriptures. They love the word of God. They're disciples. They want to study it. But tares don't care anything about it. They just as soon close it and put it away and invent their own religion, which is exactly what they did. Uh, so you consider the introduction of the anti-Christianism and the idolatries. The intellect and the conscience all cry out. Because so much of this is just manifestly absurd and evil. Absurd? You just think about some of the things that we've already considered. The priest sprinkles water on your head and it washes away your sin? What? That doesn't even make any sense. How is a bath, physical water, going to cleanse your conscience? And your character. It makes no sense whatsoever. Or how about this? Think about the soul of the departed saint. It is treated as omnipresent. So this finite soul is treated as omnipresent and omnipotent. Uh, omnipresent to hear all of the prayers all over Europe being offered to him or her. And omnipotent, able to do the things. Even work miracles that are contrary to nature. These are 
uh, attributes of the infinite being, not finite souls. It's absurd. It's absurd. And if anybody opened uh, a Bible, it would have been evident how clearly out of accord this was, how contradictory all of this was to biblical religion. You won't find a whisper of any of this anywhere in the scriptures. And also, um, uh, there was manifest wickedness. So much so, I, I would say that the conscience of people in Christendom was more difficult to uh, quiet than or, than their intellects. Their intellects were more readily lulled to sleep than the conscience. But the murders, which we considered last week, and the adulteries, which we will consider next week, uh, were all... Rome was just such a cesspool of this evil that there were constant efforts at reform. Uh, but they were misguided in as much as they weren't seeking to reform the religion as much as they were simply morals, not understanding uh, the root of the problem. So how do you quiet the crying of intellect and of conscience against these things? This is a ridiculous and evil religion. This is the argument. No matter how absurd and no matter how wicked the religion might appear, it is authenticated by divine power, by these miracles. So, even if you don't get it, God is in it. And so, I, I don't even really need to do this. Most of you will know the long history of counterfeit and fraudulent miracles. Uh, and it goes all the way back to the rise of the martyr cults for the most part and has ever attended it and propped it up. Uh, and, and you know, even to the present day, you hear about, uh, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe, that there's been some vision of the Virgin Mary someplace and she gave some special revelation and some miracle was wrought and so on. And this confirms all of the Catholics in their faith. You know, there's divine power in these things. Let me read to you, rather than trying to, I mean, the, the history would be impossibly large. What you really need is a sampling. And I, I found that Thomas Manton, in his comments on Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, gave me this, um, gave me a very handy sampling you have Manton there in your outline. There are seven points in popery which they seek to confirm by miracles. And if I might say, because they could never prove any of this out of the Bible, so they try to confirm it by miracles. And which, being senseless in themselves, do most scandalize Protestants. First, pilgrimages. They show the shrine and also the chamber of the house of the Blessed Virgin. How the Virgin of Loretta was transported out of Galilee into Dalmatia and by angels in the air to the remote parts of Italy and settled thereafter some removes. The story is ridiculous and I am serious. Yet this draweth an infinite company of pilgrims there where new miracles are pretended to be wrought continually. So you could never prove pilgrimages out of the Bible, but they prove it by the miracles, you see. Two, prayers for the dead. Bellarmine alleged out of Gregory, the miraculous apparition of Pascal's ghost, beseeching St. Germanus to pray for him. 
third, purgatory. All their miracles are framed especially for the establishing of this point, which is of such gain to them. Because remember, the peddling of indulgences requires purgatory. That's what he means by gain. As that a dead man's skull spake to Macarius, praying, When thou dost offer prayer for the dead, then do we feel a little consolation. Purgatory. For the invocation of saints. Olypius, a grammarian, being forsaken of his physicians, St. Tola appeared to him by night, demanding what, what he ailed or what he would have. He answered to show a touch of his art in Achilles' speech to his mother, Thetis, in Homer, and so on. Thou knowest, why should I tell thee that thou knowest all? Whereupon she conveyed a round stone to him with the touch of which he was presently healed. So Olypius is healed by invoking a saint. Five, the adoration of images, but especially of the cross, crucifix, an image of Christ. Malvenda said that at Meliapore, in the East Indies, where St. Thomas was killed by those barbarous people, digging to lay a foundation, they found a square stone, in it a bloody cross, and an inscription implying the saint was slain in the very act of adoring and kissing the cross. Hereupon on went the building, and the chapel being finished, In the beginning of the gospel, in the sight of the whole multitude, the cross did sweat abundantly. The sweat wiped off, drops of blood appeared in the linen with with which they wiped it, till at length it returned to its own color. And when you check your email, you've probably seen claims of miracles very much like the one just mentioned there. um, They crucifix bled, you know, and so on. Six, I should just say, this is part of what it means by they repented not. No matter how foolish this sounds to us, you will still see Roman Catholics claiming all of these uh, things. Sixth, the adoration of the host is made good by such a number of miracles as fill whole volumes. Bellarmine himself telleth us of a hungry mare kept three days without meat. Yet when provender was poured to her in the presence of the host, she, forgetting her meat, with bowed head and bended knees, adored the sacrament. Seventh, the primacy of the Pope hath been the beginning and is the end of all Popish legends. A bishop being excommunicated by Pope Hildebrand and inveighing against his pride was smitten with a thunderclap. Baronius relates that while Pope Eugenius III was celebrating the Mass, a beam of sun shone upon his head, in which were seen two doves ascending and descending, which an eastern legate seeing submitted instantly to the primacy. So by way of use, this is another note of Antichrist. These impostures are not only countenanced and encouraged in that church, but made a mark of it. The power of miracles. When Antichrist first appeared, ridiculous miracles of all sorts began to be cried up and established. Yea, and to this day, these are pleaded, 
challenging us for the want of them. What they cannot prove by the oracles of God, they endeavor to prove by miracles of Satan. And um, if you look at that list there, and if you keep up with these these sorts of things, all of that could have been written today. Uh, they continue to tell these stories. They repented not of uh, their sorceries. And uh, to the present day, there are more than a billion souls on planet Earth that are thus beguiled. But we have been warned beforehand. Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 8, and this in some ways is an exposition of what we find going on in the, um, in the Latin church, the Roman church at this time. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this was written in the 40s AD. We have been warned ahead of time that the mystery of iniquity would be attended by these um, uh, powers, signs, and lying wonders lying wonders um, that wouldn't deceive anyone of any sort of good sense had not they hated the truth to begin with. And then God gives them over to this nonsense. And if I might say so, these, these stories, these rumors, these legends, impostures, devilish arts have always been used to support uh, this false religion the Roman church. And it also, uh, these things lend credence to the, to the many invisible miracles that they claim. So in other words, these ones that are pretended to be visible lend credence to the many invisible ones that they claim for themselves, like um, the ongoing special revelation uh, to, the, to the Pope, his infallibility in his declaration, certainly a special miracle, and yet... You couldn't see it, hear it, feel it, taste it. But these things are all propped up by the, um, the rumors and the stories of the miracles that surround. And with every administration of the sacraments, they claim um, special miracles. Water that actually washes away corruption. And probably the greatest sorcery in the history of the world has been the Roman Mass the priests claiming for themselves the power to turn bread and wine into God. And it was happened in the most magical of ways. We have, I think, in, in popular language, something of an exposition of this. So imagine that you're not a Latin speaker, but you go to a Latin mass. And this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
Uh, you don't understand all of the words, but you know what's happening. And what would happen would the priest would hold aloft the wafer and he would say, Hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And you'd hear a little bell ring. And when that bell rang, you knew that the bread and the wine, although it still looked like bread and wine, had now been converted to the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is now present in the host and it's to be worshipped and adored. Also probably the greatest idolatry in the history of the world as they fall down in front of what the reformers referred to as their bread and God. Um, But in in this you actually have a double miracle that nobody could ever see. The substance of the bread and wine is changed into the substance of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two is that it still looks like bread and wine. Still maintains the accidents, as they say, of the, uh, the visible properties of, of uh, bread and wine. The common people heard all of this, and that's where we get hocus pocus. Hoc est corpus meum to people who did not understand Uh, the Latin, but knew something magical was going on. That's where hocus pocus uh, comes from. Something magical has uh, happened here. Also, the great miracle of the the indulgence and the conferring of indulgences to spring people out of purgatory. No eyes are going to see anything like that. But with all these miracles surrounding, this religion is thus uh, propped up. By way of use, and I can be very brief brief here, let us keep our Bibles open and ourselves active in the study of them, because this is the great antidote to all of this nonsense and everything that is like it. One of the reasons that global Christianity today is so vulnerable to these sorts of falsehoods and impostures is because of the famine of the word of God. And... um, This is difficult to describe unless you've unless you've done some of it and tasted of it your, yourself. But um, when you when you read the scholars and the biblical expositions that came from the first and second Reformation and those men, their learning, their uh, abilities in Scripture, their facility with which they move from one part to another, knowing the whole so well. Seemed like at a moment's notice they could discuss any verse in the whole canon with great depth and so on. We don't know anything. And not even uh, in so much of our heritage has not been uh, reclaimed, not even by by the best Reformed scholars of a present day. I think I told you one time I had somebody call me a, a Reformed scholar, and I said, what? Reformed scholar? I've not met one, but if I do, you'll be the first to know. Um, there, there isn't a demore. There isn't a pool. They once upon a time existed in great plenty. They don't exist anymore. With respect to these sorts of things, we have relapsed at least some measure back into the Dark Ages and probably be behind the High Middle Ages with respect to uh, biblical learning. And the fact that the book is closed to so many, uh, this leaves them vulnerable to all sorts of uh, false doctrines and false practices, things that would be um, 
offensive to mind and conscience uh, and sound exposition of scripture. But again, the lying wonders grab hold of a superstitious nature. God must be in it, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it doesn't, uh, even if it seems wrong or evil. God must be in it because we've had these experiences and so on. So three parts to the antidote, two doctrinal and one practical, and I won't need to do these at any length. You'll, you'll know what I'm saying. This is, these are fundamental, basic things. First of all, the Bible is the word of God, altogether trustworthy and true. That is pillar number one. The second, and the, at that point, all Christians are saying, yes, it's the second the Bible is fully sufficient with respect to belief and practice. You don't have to go anywhere else, beloved, to find true doctrine and practice. There's not a single thing that God requires of you with respect to belief and practice that you need to find some other place. Your Bible is fully sufficient. And the reality of the matter is that the Romanists have always denied this for obvious reasons. And... Um, among the charismatic, some would some would theoretically acknowledge it, others theoretically deny it, all deny it practically, as they con- continue to seek new revelations substantiated by miracles. And then those experiences come to govern the interpretation and understanding of the scripture rather than the scripture interpreting me and my experience. And this is to turn the whole thing up on its head. But if we started with pillar number one, the Bible is the word of God. If we're just sure about that, then we don't have to go anywhere but to the Bible to demonstrate its full sufficiency. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse 15, very famous. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures are able to do what? Make you wise unto salvation. You don't have to go anywhere else. To, to learn what saving faith is and who Christ is um, and to have enough unto salvation than the scriptures. But then he goes on. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And at this point, Rome and the charismatics are with us. Yes, the Bible is profitable for all of these things. But what they deny is the effect that uh, Paul asserts here, 17. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So the scripture is sufficient to make us perfect. And I want you to notice several words here. Perfect, truly, or thoroughly in modern English, all He's heaping up expressions here to let us know that uh, there's not a single thing that you will be lacking having been instructed from the scripture. If all of the scripture is learned, uh, 
believed and obeyed, the end will be perfect. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So where do you need to go to be equipped for one more good work? The simple fact of the matter is, if you got information someplace else about a good work, and it really is a good work, it's already been found in the Bible. Your Bible is fully sufficient. So these are the two doctrinal pillars. The Bible is the word of God, and the scripture is fully sufficient with respect to belief and practice. And before before going on, I just say uh, one other thing. Frequently, I have received, most of you know, I grew up in a charismatic church and I've received challenges. Well, um, how do you explain this bit of my experience or that bit of my experience or this thing that happened or that thing that happened? Um, And I always respond in the same way. I'm not an expositor of your experience. I'm an expositor of the word of God. Your experience is not the rule of faith and practice. The scripture is. There's a lot of things about human experience that I don't understand, don't even pretend to understand. When you talk about, um, uh, you know, all these strange things that happen in the world, I have no doubt that strange things happen. Um, But it's a big, wide world. Sometimes these things can be attributed to uh, the people themselves, fraud, deceit, sometimes uh, mental illness, confusion, uh, misperception. And then we're, we are surrounded by a world of spiritual beings, every bit as vast and every bit as complicated um, as this visible world that's constantly interacting with this world. So when I look at a particular thing, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't have to. The Bible is the rule of faith and practice. If your experience is allowed to be the rule of faith and practice, then you have to allow the same to the Muslim and everybody else, which is as much to say that people become the rule of faith and practice rather than God himself speaking in his word. So these two points, we have the word of God. It's fully sufficient. It tells us everything that we need to know with respect to belief and practice in order to be pleasing to God. There is nothing left out. And then the third point is practical. Study and use the scriptures like you believe this to be true. If you believe these things, let us act like we believe them. Let us get the book open and let us be diligent daily studiers of it so that we will not be subject uh, to any of these impostures. Let us pray together. Only Father, it does seem that throughout most of the world, in spite of the fact that Bibles abound, it is largely a book closed. Little read, little studied, even less understood. But we are well assured from the scriptures themselves 
and the shining testimony of history that when the book is opened, the world changes. And so our petition this evening is a simple one. Holy Father, we long to see the covenant angel descend again and to open the book for his people again, uh, preaching with authority and power so that the professing Christian world might be renewed and reformed and the mists of these errors blown away and dispelled. Holy Father, we deserve no good thing from thine hand. Indeed, we have sinned in the closing of the book. But we ask that thou wouldst remember thy people, thy professing people, in mercy. And grant unto us all the scriptures again. For we believe and know that in the study of the scriptures, we have life. Hear us as we pray unto thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 139.